Part 2 President Trump appeals the district court's denial of his claim of official act immunity. That is the sole issue before us. While the denial of a motion to dismiss ordinarily is not immediately appealable, an order denying a claim of official immunity is an immediately appealable collateral order. In considering President Trump's claim of immunity, we review the district court's legal determinations de novo and assume the truth of the plaintiff's material factual allegations. Section A The Supreme Court's decision in Nixon v. Fitzgerald and Clinton v. Jones established the basic framework for our analysis. In Nixon, A. Ernest Fitzgerald sought civil damages from President Richard M. Nixon and other officials for allegedly eliminating his job at the Department of the Air Force in retaliation for unflattering congressional testimony he had provided about his superiors. The court concluded that President Nixon, as a former president of the United States, was entitled to absolute immunity from damages liability predicated on his official acts. Such immunity, the court said, is a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. The presidential immunity doctrine articulated in Nixon is capacious by design. In pre-Nixon official immunity cases involving other officials, the court had employed a functional approach under which, for most officials, the scope of the immunity defense varied in proportion to the nature of the official's official functions and the range of decisions that conceivably might be taken in good faith. But the president the Nixon court explained, occupies a unique position in the constitutional scheme. As the embodiment of the executive branch, he must make the most sensitive and far-reaching decisions entrusted to any official under our constitutional system. The principal rationale for official immunity providing an official the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office, thus applies to the president with pronounced force. For that reason, the court found it appropriate to recognize absolute presidential immunity from damages liability for acts within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. The decisions from which Nixon drew the outer perimeter test make evident that a president's official responsibilities encompass more than just those acts falling within the office's express constitutional and statutory authority. Official responsibilities also include discretionary acts within the concept of duty associated with the office. Put somewhat differently, an act lies within the outer perimeter of an official's duties if it is the kind of act not manifestly or palpably beyond the official's authority, 
but rather having more or less connection with the general matters committed by law to his control or supervision. Applying the outer perimeter test to President Nixon's alleged conduct, the Nixon court had little trouble holding that President Nixon was entitled to official immunity. President Nixon, the court reasoned, had the constitutional and statutory authority to prescribe the manner in which the Secretary will conduct the business of the Air Force, including by prescribing reorganizations and reductions in force. The court reached that conclusion notwithstanding Fitzgerald's contentions that his dismissal had been retaliatory and that no federal official could, within the outer perimeter of his duties of office, dismiss Fitzgerald without satisfying the applicable four-cause removal standard in prescribed statutory proceedings. Denying immunity on those grounds, the court explained, would require a highly intrusive examination of the president's motives and subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. Doing so would therefore deprive absolute immunity of its intended effect. The court revisited a President's Official Act immunity 15 years later, in Clinton, its most recent case on the subject. In that case, Paula Jones sought civil damages from President William J. Clinton. She alleged that President Clinton, while serving as governor of Arkansas, had made unwelcome sexual advances towards her and then retaliated against and later defamed her for rejecting his advances. President Clinton moved to dismiss, arguing that, as president, he was entitled to temporary immunity from the lawsuit until after his presidency. The court disagreed, reasoning that President Clinton's alleged actions, with the potential exception of allegedly defamatory statements made after he became president, were unrelated to any of his official duties as president of the United States and, indeed, occurred before he was elected to that office. Clinton confirmed that the absolute presidential immunity recognized in Nixon is an official immunity that extends no further than the outer perimeter of a president's official responsibility. That is because the primary justification for affording the president official act immunity from civil damages liability, enabling him to perform his designated functions effectively without fear that a particular decision may give rise to personal liability, provides no support for an immunity for unofficial conduct. To the contrary, an immunity for unofficial acts would be grounded purely in the identity of the president's office, contravening the settled understanding that immunity is based on the nature of the function performed, not the identity of the actor who performed it. Because Jones's allegations involved President Clinton's purely private acts rather than acts taken in his public character, he was not entitled to official immunity.
even on a temporary basis. Together, Nixon and Clinton established three governing principles. First, the president is entitled to official immunity from civil damages liability based on actions within the outer perimeter of official presidential responsibility, including discretionary acts within the concept of duty associated with the presidency. Second, the president is subject to civil damages suits based on actions taken in an unofficial, private capacity to the same extent as any private citizen. And third, the president's actions do not fall beyond the outer perimeter of official responsibility merely because they are unlawful or taken for a forbidden purpose. Rather, the president's official immunity insulates all of his official actions from civil damages liability, regardless of their legality or his motives. Section B. President Trump maintains that his actions, as alleged in the complaints, fall within the outer perimeter of official presidential responsibility, entitling him to official act immunity as to all the claims against him. His primary argument is that his alleged actions leading up to and on January 6th were official presidential actions because they amounted to speech on matters of public concern. In the alternative, he submits that those actions were official because they came within his constitutional duty under the Take Care Clause. We are unpersuaded by either argument. 1. We begin with President Trump's principal contention that a president enjoys absolute immunity from civil damages liability whenever he speaks on matters of public concern. Without reaching the question whether all of President Trump's pertinent actions alleged in the complaints in fact involved speech on matters of public concern, we reject his submission that such speech invariably counts as official activity. To endorse that argument would be to establish an immunity from suit for unofficial acts grounded purely in the identity of the president's office. The salient question in the cases before us is whether President Trump took the actions alleged in the complaints in his official capacity or instead in his private capacity. The question whether those actions involved speech on matters of public concern bears no inherent connection to the essential distinction between official and unofficial acts. A. The most basic premise of President Trump's argument, that speaking on matters of public concern is something presidents regularly do in the exercise of official responsibilities, is incontestable. The President of the United States possesses an extraordinary power to speak to his fellow citizens and on their behalf. That power, famously labeled the Presidential Bully Pulpit by Theodore Roosevelt, is an everyday tool of the Presidency. 
and many uses of the presidential bully pulpit fall comfortably within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility. True, there is no bully pulpit clause in the Constitution. But as we have explained, the outer perimeter of official responsibility extends beyond a president's expressly enumerated powers to encompass discretionary acts within the concept of duty associated with the office. The president thus acts within the outer perimeter of his official functions when he announces his intention to issue an executive order eulogizes the fallen leader of an ally, or offers the nation's condolences and support to a community reeling from a tragedy. President Trump's argument, though, reaches considerably further. He insists that all of a president's speech on matters of public concern, as a categorical rule, is an exercise of official presidential responsibility. That is a sweeping proposition, and one that ultimately sweeps too far. The notion that speech must relate to a matter of public concern does not rule out much when the speaker is the president. In view of the visibility of his office and the effect of his actions on countless people, a great deal of what the president does or speaks about becomes a matter of public concern merely by virtue of the identity of his office, even if it would not amount to a matter of public concern if performed or said by someone else. To see how far a public concern test reaches, consider initially an example involving conduct alone, rather than speech, in particular sexual misconduct. Such conduct, as President Trump concedes, is presumably of a manifestly private nature, undertaken in a private, unofficial capacity. Yet alleged sexual misconduct involving the president is also plainly a subject of legitimate news interest, that is, a subject of general interest and of value and concern to the public. To immunize a president from civil damages liability for alleged sexual misconduct during his presidency just because the conduct is a matter of public concern then would be to construct an immunity from suit for unofficial acts grounded purely in the identity of his office. President Trump's proposed public concern test would unduly broaden official act immunity in much the same way for presidential speech. The Supreme Court has never suggested that the president has an immunity that extends beyond the scope of any action taken in an official capacity. President Trump's public concern standard, though, would do just that. When the speaker is the president, speech undertaken in a plainly and purely unofficial capacity will often involve a matter of public concern. Yet President Trump's test would still grant immunity in that circumstance, even though there is no support for an immunity for unofficial conduct or speech. As an example, consider a situation directly germane to the cases before us, in which President Trump publicly volunteered that he was acting and speaking 
in an unofficial private capacity. In the period after the 2020 election and before January 6th, the Supreme Court considered an effort by Texas to challenge the administration of the election in several battleground states in which then-President-elect Biden had been declared the winner. President Trump moved to intervene in the case. In doing so, he specifically explained to the Supreme Court and captioned his filing accordingly that he sought to intervene in this matter in his personal capacity as a candidate for re-election to the office of President of the United States. He relatedly elaborated that he wished to intervene to protect his unique and substantial personal interests as a candidate for re-election to the office of president. President Trump then affirmatively communicated to the Supreme Court and the public that he was acting and speaking in that matter in his personal capacity as a candidate for re-election. Indeed, he explained that his reason for wanting to participate in the case was a substantial personal one rather than an official one. That stands in sharp contrast with other cases in which he, like all presidents, had filed briefs in the Supreme Court in his official capacity as President of the United States. But while President Trump's effort to participate in Texas v. Pennsylvania was made in an expressly and self-consciously personal, unofficial capacity, the content of his speech in his submission undoubtedly involved a matter of significant public concern, his challenge to the election results in various pivotal states whose electors would determine the outcome of the election. As that example illustrates, an immunity for all presidential speech on matters of public concern, without regard to the context in which the president speaks, would be grounded purely in the identity of the actor who performed it, rather than the nature of the function performed. Such a result is unsupported by precedent and it is unsupported by the basic object of granting a president official act immunity, assuring that the president is not unduly cautious in the discharge of his official duties. That concern necessarily has no salience when the president acts, by his own admission, in an unofficial, private capacity. B. As President Trump's intervention motion in Texas v. Pennsylvania highlights, whether the president speaks or engages in conduct on a matter of public concern bears no necessary correlation with whether he speaks or engages in conduct in his official or personal capacity. And because it is the latter question that governs the availability of presidential immunity, as a matter both of precedent and of the essential nature of an immunity for, and only for, official acts, we must reject President Trump's proposed public concern test as ill-suited to the inquiry. President Trump's intervention motion is telling in a related respect as well, 
which pertains to identifying when a president acts in an official or private capacity in the specific circumstances of the cases before us. The motion expressly recognizes, as we hold today, that when a sitting president acts as a candidate for re-election, he does so in his personal capacity, not in an official capacity. Otherwise said, a sitting president, just like the candidates he runs against, is subject to civil damages liability for his actions constituting re-election campaign activity. The principle that an incumbent president seeks re-election in his private capacity rather than in his official capacity finds its roots in the framing. Madison explained that a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government. To that end, the framers rendered the president directly accountable to the people through regular elections, and every practicable obstacle was imposed to prevent cabal, intrigue, and corruption from giving an incumbent president a structural electoral advantage, including the exclusion from service in the Electoral College of all those who, from situation, might be suspected of too great devotion to the president in office. The essence of those framing-era principles, in the words of Chief Justice Marshall, is that the president is elected from the mass of the people and, on the expiration of the time for which he is elected, returns to the mass of the people again. That fundamental understanding holds regardless of whether the person elected to serve as the next president also happens to be the incumbent. A sitting president has no inherently greater claim to serving the next four-year term than does any other candidate. And if an incumbent president seeks and ultimately wins re-election, he does so in the same manner as anyone else vying for the office. He is elected from the mass of the people. It follows that when a sitting president acts in his capacity as a candidate for re-election, he acts as office seeker, not office holder. The presidency itself has no institutional interest in who will occupy the office next. Campaigning to attain that office thus is not an official function of the office. Rather, an incumbent president's interests in winning re-election have the same purely private character as those of his challengers, i.e. substantial personal interests as a candidate to attain or retain the office. Accordingly, a president acts in a private, unofficial capacity when engaged in re-election campaign activity. The executive branch's own views and practice reinforce the point. In 1982, just a few months before the Supreme Court decided Nixon, the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel, OLC, advised President Reagan that funds appropriated for official functioning of the offices of the president and the vice president may be used for travel expenses only 
if the travel is reasonably related to an official purpose, and that appropriated funds thus should not be used to pay for political events. Political events, OLC reasoned, generally have no reasonable connection to the official purposes served by appropriated funds. As a general rule, moreover, presidential and vice-presidential travel should be considered political if its primary purpose involves their positions as leaders of their political party, as would be the case with appearing at party functions, fundraising, and campaigning for specific candidates, of course, including for oneself. The executive branch itself thus considers its own chief officeholder's campaign for re-election to lie well outside his official functions. A contrary conclusion would grant a sitting president immunity based purely in the identity of his office, improperly treating his efforts to gain the office for a second term as an official act of the office. Compare, for instance, a former one-term president who runs to regain the presidency for a second non-consecutive term with a current one-term president who runs to retain office for a second straight term. Whether a one-term president runs to regain the office or to retain it, the object is the same, to serve again as president in the next term. And with respect to their campaign-related activity to attain that objective, there is no basis for cloaking a sitting president running for the office with an immunity and resulting advantage that a former president running for the office would lack. Both act in their personal capacity as a candidate for re-election to the office of president. President Trump's proposed public concern standard, though, would treat them differently the sitting president would enjoy absolute immunity for all speech on a matter of public concern, even purely campaign speech given strictly in his capacity as candidate, whereas the former president would get no immunity for precisely the same campaign speech. Consider, for example, a speech at a political party's convention accepting the party's nomination as its candidate for president. Such a speech is inherently given in the nominee's private capacity as office seeker. That is no less true when the party's nominee is the sitting president. A sitting president gives the acceptance speech at his party's convention only if he seeks and wins the party's nomination, or else some other person will give the same speech. In that situation, then, the president speaks in an unofficial, private capacity, applying the executive branch's long-time understanding. If a sitting president running for re-election gives an acceptance speech at the party's convention, that presumably counts as appearing at a party function and is unofficial activity in the executive branch's own view. But because an acceptance speech at a party convention will also surely address matters of public concern, President Trump's proposed approach would nonetheless grant a sitting president immunity for it. A former president, though, would not get the same favorable treatment for the same speech, 
nor would any other candidate. President Trump's approach thus would attach official act immunity to the unofficial conduct of the individual who happens to be the president. Or take another example, a candidate ad fully funded by a candidate's campaign. In the ad, the candidate discusses her policy priorities, no doubt matters of public concern. And the ad concludes with the legally mandated disclosure, paid for and authorized by Jane Doe's campaign, followed by the familiar voiceover, I am Jane Doe, and I approve this message. Under President Trump's proposed public concern test, if the candidate happens to be the sitting president, but not if she is a former president or any other candidate, her speech in the ad would be official, even though it is plainly campaign speech in a campaign ad given in her private capacity as candidate. A sitting president then would be absolutely immune from defamation liability for something she may have said about her opponent in the campaign ad, whereas a former president would face liability for saying the very same thing in the very same ad. The pro-incumbent imbalance would be especially stark if the former and current presidents were to run against each other. In that situation, one candidate, the former president, would face civil damages liability for statements on matters of public concern in campaign ads or in an acceptance speech at a party convention. But the competing candidate, the sitting president, would be wholly insulated from damages liability for making the very same statements on the opposing side of the very same race. We see no basis for giving an incumbent president that kind of asymmetrical advantage when running against his predecessor. That is not to say that when an incumbent president engages in campaign speech as a candidate, there is no recognition of his current office. At the party convention, he presumably would be introduced and referred to as the president, as is natural. And, relatedly, he may give the acceptance speech at a podium affixed with the presidential seal, as nominees of both major political parties have done when speaking in their private capacities as candidates for re-election. But while the person giving the address is, and is recognized to be, the sitting president, he still delivers the address in his private unofficial capacity as candidate for re-election. It is analogous to the president appearing in a public filing as the president of the United States, but specifically in his personal capacity as candidate for re-election. And when the president speaks strictly in that capacity, there is no warrant for granting him official act immunity. In short, a president's speech on matters of public concern can be an official act, as in the case of the State of the Union Address, or an unofficial act, as in the case of a speech at a re-election campaign rally. For purposes of presidential immunity, the key is whether the president is speaking or engaging in conduct, 
in an official capacity as officeholder, or instead in an unofficial capacity as office seeker. Whether the speech relates to matters of public concern is beside the point. Because President Trump believes that speech on matters of public concern constitutes official presidential action as a categorical matter, he makes no effort to this appeal to resist the notion that he was acting in his capacity as a candidate when engaged in the activity alleged in the complaints. In his view, he is entitled to immunity regardless of whether he was acting as a candidate. Even if so, President Trump submits his relevant actions in the run-up to January 6th and on the day itself amounted to speech on a matter of public concern, i.e., the integrity of the 2020 election, and so fell well within the scope of ordinary presidential action entitled to immunity. As President Trump would have it, then, he engaged in official presidential action for immunity purposes even when he, by his own description, acted and spoke in his personal capacity as a candidate for re-election rather than in his official capacity as president. After all, his arguments in that filing addressed at length the same matter of public concern he invokes in this appeal, the integrity of the 2020 election. But as the Supreme Court has explained, there is no support for an immunity for unofficial conduct, and hence no basis for granting immunity for conduct or speech the president himself contemporaneously recognizes he undertakes in his personal unofficial capacity as a candidate. We've come to the end of part two of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>